0: I was watching a video clip recently they were talking about schools in France and some little village in France and just how they handle lunch and the kinds of lunch that they provide to their students. Very nutritious. It's an hour lunch break. The mayor's office comes and sits and tastes the lunch. They do a whole tasting menu and the students sit together and they learn to serve and they learn to have conversation You know, I think of that in contrast to my children who go to a school just down the street from us who have a 20 minute lunch and who have to get rushed from class, you know, and I think what are we teaching children if we're teaching them that life is just one big rush because they're going to take that same attitude into the workplace, into the rest of their lives and never think about just slowing down and pacing themselves. So, you know, school is practice for life in many ways, and we have to get it right because these children have their entire lives ahead of them.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Inner Wealth, the Forbes Ignite podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal, CEO of Forbes Ignite, and every week I'll be sharing with you my conversations with unique, creative, and innovative people across all different industries. These are people who are intellectually curious explorers who are also redefining what it means to be successful today. From personal to professional, we cover it all to understand what drives our guests to blaze their own trails and create nimble solutions within the industries that touch each of our lives. Our guest today is Elizabeth Alongo, CEO of the Global Village Project, the only school for refugee girls in the U.S. She has an incredible story with a great passion for youth, travel, and education. She has traveled to more than 50 countries, which is just one of her many, many achievements, including being a Fulbright Scholar. We talk about women of color as role models, advocacy and allyship with the refugee community, and doing education right by creating an environment of success for refugee girls with the students at the center of the experience. I know you're going to love what she has to say. Here's our chat.
0: Hi, Elizabeth. How's it going? Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Nicole.
1: It's going well. It's a good day. The sun's out. It's summertime. Couldn't be better. I was just saying to you earlier, we're just trying to stay out of the heat here in Atlanta, but everything is good otherwise.
0: (laughs) It is I you know I've I've had uh, foot surgery so I've I've been kind of sequestered in my house all summer so everybody who comes to visit says oh it's so hot out there and I go I I have no idea I'm just, I've just been in the house so pluses and minuses to what would otherwise be a bad situation
1: so I, exactly the silver lining right there you go and I know you've been up to so much. You have such an amazing story that I want to get into. But before we dive in, I'd love to know what have you been up to lately? Uh, not a whole, well, like I said, you know, not not being very mobile, but I did something very brave last week.
0: One week a year, we close our offices and all of our staff goes on leave. So I I went to Puerto Rico because I'm a, very much an ocean girl. I've never been to Puerto Rico. And I thought I was a little crazy going on a trip by myself when I couldn't walk. But the airlines and the airports were amazingly helpful. So it wasn't as daunting As I had feared. But the thing that I did learn that I came away with, which was really such a great lesson, was just my mother said to me, always said to me growing up, if you ever find yourself in a bind, don't be afraid to rely on the kindness of strangers. Mm -hmm. And people were so kind and so thoughtful to me. You know, traveling by myself, I was on crutches, I was in the wheelchair going through the airport. And I just remember at the gate sitting there, I'd had a yogurt for breakfast, and I was just sitting there trying to, you know, gather the courage and the strength to go put the thing in the trash can. And this man came from across the room and said, "Would you like me to take that for you?" And just went and put my and it was so kind. Of, I mean, so many things happened like that in that tr- on that trip. So that was really nice to. <laughs> To just be reminded that there's goodness in the world, but, but otherwise I I have been up to nothing. I got to Puerto Rico and spent seven days on the beach, staring at the ocean and and my soul needed that.
1: Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. In so many different ways, just being reminded the kindness of strangers Mm -hmm. and just having faith in humanity as a whole. Yeah. Something we're, we don't, we're not always remembering recently. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I know times have been really tough, especially lately, but it's always good to be reminded of these things. So Thank you for the reminder. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to know, what is your story, your personal and professional journey to where you are today?
0: Sure. I was born and raised in Cameroon in Central Africa um, to middle-class parents. And I I went to school there until I was 16. I I had this, my parents were very big on education. My father is a college professor. So my education was very important. I loved school. I (laughs) There are not many people in the world who say that, I, I realize now, but I absolutely loved school and I was great at it. And I, I got to skip several grades in my primary school life. And so I was 16 when I came to the U.S. to start college and I went to Kennesaw State. My dad was teaching there at the time. He, he'd moved and taken a job in the U.S. And so when I, like with all my other siblings, when I got to college age, I came over to the U.S. and I went to Kennesaw State, did my undergraduate in international relations with a focus on Africa and the Middle East which I studied Africa because growing up in Africa, there's very little that's taught to us about our continent, right? We get these at least until maybe recently it's changed but very Eurocentric education. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was very curious about Africa and I, I got to study that. And then I, I got a scholarship to go on to Yale University to do a master's degree, which I did in African studies. And thereafter, my, my curiosity about my home continent had just kind of gotten to, you know, a feverish pitch. So I was able to, I did a Fulbright scholarship in Zanzibar and in, in Tanzania for a summer. And then I, I got to work in South Africa, Kenya, Tanzania. And after that, I just, I started a career in development with an organization called Heifer International, which worked in Africa and ended up after 13, 15 years at Heifer, I was leading our Africa programs as the vice president. So I was based in Little Rock, Arkansas at that time, and I was traveling a lot <laughs> back to Africa <laughs> and eventually decided to leave that job and go take the job of CEO for Junior Achievement Africa. Cause I thought, well, if I'm going to be back and forth to the continent, so often I might as well live there. Mm-hmm. So I got to do that job for five years and it was amazing. And after that, I found this opportunity at Global Village Project and moved back to Atlanta to do this job. So it's been, it's been really not a career I could have planned for, <laughs> right? It's been amazing in so many ways. I've gotten to every single day of my professional life, do the thing that makes me happiest. I have a great passion for youth and and education, just drawing from what it's done for me. So. So that has been my story professionally. Personally, I'm, I'm a mother of two. My daughters are middle schoolers and we live here in Atlanta in this happy little life under the trees.
1: <laughs> I love it. No, that is a wonderful story. So thank you so much for sharing. you touched upon this a little bit. You traveled a lot back and forth between the U.S. and Africa, but I know you also traveled to more than 50 countries in your lifetime so tell us more I about did. that. I did. you I'll start the story
0: by, by saying when I was in college, I think it was junior year, I had this opportunity to go do a study abroad and mm-hmm. I wasn't able to go. I don't remember what the reason was, but I remember going to my mentor's office. She taught at the school and I sat there and I just hoo cried so hard because I was like, this is the only time in my life I'll ever get to go anywhere. <laughs> and she let me cry and let me cry. And then at the end of me crying hysterically and like rubbing my nose, <laughs> she said to me, she just started laughing. And I thought, why are you laughing when I am in pain? And she said to me, you are going to get to go everywhere in the world. You just don't know that. And I don't know how she knew that. But she just absolutely reassured me of it. Her name was Dr. Rosa Bovia. She was a French professor and my mentor and, and a family friend. But she said, you're going to get to go everywhere. And I didn't see it at the time. This is the power of mentors, right? Yes. And she was right. And I've thought about her every single time I'm on a plane that took off, because I did get to travel. I've been, I have been everywhere in the world. (laughs) You know, when I was at heifer, I was traveling mostly to Africa, but also really, I got to go to Nepal, I got to, you know, travel in Europe quite extensively. And even when I went on to junior achievement, you know, I thought I was going to be traveling just in Africa, where my work was, but I was on the global board of, of junior achievement and the global board met everywhere. So, You know, one day we were in Madrid and the next day we were in Peru and the next day we were in Hong Kong or, you know, Dubai or whatever. So I was traveling a lot for the last 20 years. I was averaging probably about 12, 13 trips a year, international trips, (laughs) you know, on Delta Airlines. I was racking up those miles. So it has been a very surprising journey, not one I could have planned for myself, but one that was just amazing by any account.
1: That's amazing. And I know that you mentioned that mentors are so important, especially your, your French professor, for example. Yes. But who are some of your role models that have inspired you to get you where you are today?
0: Oh, gosh, so many, so many. I, I draw on the strength of particularly other women, especially women of color, but all the other women in general. You know, we're in 2022 and still we in the news are seeing that women are first in so many different industries. And, you know, I was like, we've been here since the beginning of time. Why are we? (laughs) And it's wonderful that we're having these experiences and that we're still first. But, you know, there's so many amazing women in the world and it's a shame that the world is only now catching on to that idea. But I look up to, especially in the media now, we have the joy of social media if you use it right is that you can really follow somebody's life and career and advice very closely without ever having met them. Michelle Obama is a big one for me. Big, big mentor. I've never met her, may never meet her, but I have every magazine cover she's ever been on. (laughs) Follow her closely. Oprah is another one. You know, I admire women in politics, maybe because I have a latent interest in politics, especially in African politics, I think first ladies very often get undervalued yeah. in their roles. But when I, you know, in my last couple of jobs, I, I got to spend a lot of time with presidencies across Africa and across the world. And, you know, for hanging out with first ladies on their, their different projects, and just really got to admire the amount of work that they do that often goes undervalued, because they're often in the shadow of their husband's. So there's, uh, there's too many role models to name, but every single one of them, I, I draw very lifelong lessons from.
1: Absolutely. So tell us about a story when you have the opportunity to work with a first lady, whether it was in Africa or abroad, somewhere else.
0: Um, one that comes to mind immediately. I remember just a few years ago, I had been invited, the first lady of Zambia had this program. She was a big supporter of junior achievement and of just youth in general. And so she'd invited me to come down. I was living in Ghana at the time. And come spend a day, a couple of days with her. She was doing this youth mentorship program. And so a lot of organization, of course, went into those things. And I had an amazing team who coordinated everything. And so I just had to show up and smile and, and participate. But I got to spend a couple of days at the presidency with her. She had this big program. And she had asked that we do the program with differently able children. So we had children who were in wheelchairs. We had children who were visually impaired. We had all kinds of different children from all different backgrounds. And I just remember watching her and her people. It's <laughs> the thing with politicians. They're often very, you know, her, their people put so many guardrails. they have gone through protocol with me and told me what not to do. Don't hug her and don't do this. And do. And she could not have been any more different than what they portrayed her to be. And I just remember that whole day, you know, watching her. There's a lot of ceremony. There's a lot of pomp and circumstances, standing up and sitting down and she's in heels and the speeches to be made and and hands to shake and, and cameras slashing at you all day and you're smiling and Every single thing that you are doing is being watched. And I was just really, I learned so much from watching her and the passion that went behind her work, which, you know, the media often wants sound bites, but it's so hard to capture passion. Right. And I remember just seeing how tired she was at the end of the day. And yet she was just giving her all. That was one of the memories for me that I took away. It was just this was a woman who was getting no recognition or no reward for the work that she was doing. And yet that made such a difference in the lives of those children, because these were children who, because of their disabilities came from households where some of them had never been allowed to leave the house, you know, because their family, there's so much stigma, their families are ashamed to put them out there. And then they get to be in the presidency and they're being hugged by the, the first lady. It just, it changes his So that was one that, that stood out for me was that experience of just spending a day with the first lady of, of Zambia. She was really amazing.
1: I love that. I admire that so much. And I feel like this is the perfect segue into your work as a nonprofit executive over at the Global Village Project. So what are some of the initiatives that you're most proud of in your organization that empowers refugee girls from the ages of 11 to
0: 18? I'll start by just you know saying Global Village Project is an amazing organization here in Georgia. We are a school for refugee girls. We're the only school for refugee girls that we're aware of in the country. And, and that's in itself data, right? <laughs> the fact that we have so many refugees coming into this country. And almost no schools that are catered to their needs. And so what we do as a school is that we bring these girls in from all countries of the world where there's conflict and there's no shortage of them right now. And we give them the education that really meets them where they are. Some of our students come and they've they've been in schools before, they've been educated, they get scientific concept or whatever we're teaching them but they often don't have the English language to be able to express that. So you see a girl who's sitting in class and we're talking about the solar system and she has the answer and she's just dying to get it out, but she doesn't have the language. So you take that student on one hand. And then on the other hand is a student who's coming in first year has never been in a school before. um, And all of the school experience is new to her. So she's, she's sitting at a desk for the first time all day. She is sitting under bright lights the sound of the school bell ringing might be triggering for her because it might take her back to a time when, you know, raids or whatever she's experienced in our past. So it's a really, really amazing school. And what we prioritize is just creating an environment that is really catered to these girls. And that takes into account the trauma in their background and just the experiences that they've had. You know, otherwise, what our systems would do is when these families come in, put these girls in the public school. And imagine a girl who's never been in a school before going to public school, they're put according to age, she'll get called up to the whiteboard to answer a question, you know, that she has no context for. So being in an environment where the education that she's receiving is tailored to her needs, the people she's around care very deeply about what's happening to her, not just in school, but at home, where she's surrounded by other girls who have similar backgrounds, even though they're from different countries. That's really what we're about at Global Village Project is creating an ecosystem where students can be nurtured and can learn in a way that that works for them.
1: That is really beautiful. And I admire you so much for what you do and for everything that your team does, because it sounds like there's a lot of human-centered design that has gone into how to best serve these students who have been educated previously, but just don't know the English language that well. And so there's all these different levels that have to be catered to. And so I really admire what you do. Thank you. It's, you know, I call it hard work. Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm very fortunate that in all of my career, that has been the kind of work that I've done, you know, to, to be able to get up every day and, and look forward to going to work. It's not something that many people, <laughs> you know, can relate with. And I think if you, if I, because I get to do that, I'm, I'm very fortunate.
1: Absolutely. So how can your approach at the school teach to the broader community of educators around the world, given the uniqueness of the opportunities that you provide young girls?
0: hmm I think, you know, one of the unique things, you know, we we are a trauma-informed school. We have restorative discipline practices in the way that we approach education. And, and you know, those are big fancy terms that just mean that the student is at the center and the student's experience is at the center of, of the learning environment, um, taking into account what they have experienced and being inquisitive about what's really going on in a student's life, as opposed to just having them be another you know, number or a statistic behind grades that we're trying to get them to accomplish. So even the way we look at success in our school is not just about their academics. We put their academics at the same level as their social and emotional well-being to make sure that the students are really balanced. We're very big on creating a safe environment. So one of the differences in our school, for example, if a student needs timeout or is not behaving in a way that is conforming to what we require of them We don't make assumptions that the student is just being belligerent. We really inquire about what's going on with them. We create spaces for them to express themselves and their feelings and their challenges. And our students come from really, really challenging backgrounds. Most of them have experienced war and the displacement. You know, by the time they come to the U.S., they've lived in two, three different countries in their low, short lives. And I think that that's something that we can really use to, you know, if we're doing education right, the student really is at the center of it. And we need to rethink, I think, so much about the way the schools run and, and schools function and serve students, because I think we've come away from that quite
1: a bit. I think what you all are doing is such a great model, a great model for lots of other schools in the school system, not just in the U.S., but globally to learn from. And so how do you engage parents in the communities around the school to help support the initiatives of GVP beyond curriculum? Mm. You know, parent engagement is something we had struggled with
0: historically, but we were finally making some headway with it. And the pandemic was actually, this was one of the silver linings of the pandemic, was that we had to build stronger relationships with families in a way that we had not been able to prior. During the pandemic, students were learning virtually. We provided computers for all of them to be able to attend class. And while they had the option of turning their screens off, sometimes they would turn their screens on and we would see our students, what's happening in their lives. You know, behind them, they would have other siblings who were trying to learn and who they were assisting they'd be ironing clothes, they'd be cooking lunch for their parents who are working long hours at the factory down the street or whatever job. And so those were some of the things that gave us an insight into the fact that our students, our students particularly had very different atypical lives from the average middle school students. It was an impetus for us to more deeply engage with the families, to more deeply understand what the students were going through, Mm -hmm. and to be able to use their experiences, their lived experiences to inform how we communicate with them in school, how we engage with them. So that family and and parent involvement has been critical. We've now created a parent council that advises us and that weighs in on decisions we have to make about the students. We are very fortunate to have a very, very involved community at Global Village Project that shows up every time we need them. The school runs on the power of volunteers. We have about 100 that come through the school every week. Amazing people who come and help with tutoring and helping with classroom support and so on and so forth. And then we have these fundraisers. We have an annual walk this year, November 5th. We had 300 people come out last year, just when the pandemic was ebbing, and supported us and supported the refugee community. So we're very fortunate for that support.
1: That's amazing. And I'm definitely putting that on my calendar. Please come. It's (laughs) a really great walk. (laughs) That's amazing. And I know this is kind of a heavy question, but I'm curious to hear your perspective on this. Why do you think we haven't seen more refugee schools in the United States?
0: Oh, that is a heavy question. I don't
1: know the answer to that. It's not easy work. It's not easy
0: work. And our school systems are very complicated and quite set in their ways. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of policy and politics behind starting new schools. And just in, I think in general, just challenging the status quo, right? Which is what our school does. It challenges the status quo. It, It challenges the way we have run schools typically. In our school, for example, we have a very small teacher to student ratio. It's about one to eight. And, you know, doing that, especially at a public school level, even at a private school, it's it's very expensive. So I think those are some of the reasons. I don't know if those are the full reasons, but changing policy, changing practice, anything to do with change is a slow and difficult process. So our hope is that even though our school is so small, that we are providing proof of concept that it's doable. We have a theory around replication and scaling that if we're able to package our experiences, which are now 13, 14 years old, and share it with others, they would be able to learn from them and realize that it's not as daunting as it seems. And that when you take the effort of creating such a unique school and measure it against the impact in the long term, it's well worth it to do.
1: And I know this is kind of more of like a technical question, but I, I'm curious to know how does the school measure its impact? Mm. I
0: mentioned earlier that we really look at success and it's all very student-centered and we're looking at their academics as well as their emotional well-being, which we have all kinds of forms and tests and systems to measure. But we really measure impact by the long-term trajectory of our students. So not just what happens on the school and how they're doing with grades and learning and English and and math and so on, that's important. But we have a, a robust and growing alumni program that follows the students beyond their life at Global Village Project. So looking at how they're performing in high school, looking at the number of students who go on to college and who graduate college. And, and for those who don't go on to college, how prepared are they for life, for work life, and just for life in general, adapting to society in the U.S., which is something I experienced, even under the best of circumstances as a teenager coming to this country, it's not easy. So when we're measuring success, we're looking at all of those things. We're looking at the whole child and the whole student seeing, saying, did we provide them enough of a, foundational support to be able to succeed in life.
1: I love that. That's such a robust way of understanding the person holistically and Mm -hmm. not just looking at stats, looking at numbers. Yeah, we're,
0: We're always so much more than statistics. Statistics are important, but they mean nothing if not put in the context of a whole story.
1: That is so well said. So what would you say to anyone who's interested in being involved at GBP and how can they make an impact in their own way?
0: Ah, there's so many ways to be involved, and I hope people will be involved. I mentioned earlier volunteering. We're always looking for volunteers, people who come on campus. There's any number of things that people can be helpful with guided reading. You can help a student learn how to read, guided math, tutoring, mentoring. The volunteer program is a very, very critical part of our success. As a nonprofit, another way that people can get involved is donating. Of course, we need money to be able to do the things that we're doing. So that's also another way that people can contribute. But I think in general, advocacy and allyship with the refugee community. I think generally in society and the way that refugees are presented in the media, they are presented as people who are sort of desperate or come from less than and anything other we tend to kind of look down on. But I think the thing that we need to remember and be reminded of is that refugees are people just like me and you, people who through no fault of their own, are forced to flee from their countries, from their homes, from their lives, from everything that they've known for their safety. And so when these people come into the U.S. or into any country, they have a lot to offer. I mean, our our students, parents, we've got neuroscientists and all kinds of, you know, professionals in those pools. And it's a shame that because there's a barrier with language or their accreditations and certifications don't transfer internationally, we push them to do, you know, jobs that are less than what they are educated or prepared to do. So I think we need to really do some more work around advocacy for refugees and elevating their importance and their contributions to our, our society because I think those, those contributions are immense.
1: Absolutely. And what would you say to listeners who are interested in starting their own social venture or becoming a nonprofit leader like yourself?
0: Ah. Uh. Do it. <laughs> um, well, first on the nonprofit leadership, you know, for me, I mentioned earlier that I feel like I've never worked a day in my life because I am that person. Every single day, I I can't wait to get up and get to work. And so, you know, being able to do that is a great gift and a great blessing. But in terms of starting a, a social venture, you know, the needs of the world are many and varied and urgent and growing, unfortunately. And I think if you identify a need, if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? Right. Um, if if you have it in you to meet that need, by all means, do it. Don't be daunted by the apparent difficulty of it because the impact of it negates that. You know, in general, I just say, look around your community. Chances are there's a need and chances are you're able to fill that need. So don't, I, I say people shouldn't hold back. There's a lot of need in the world, but we have, there's also a lot of ability to meet that need. There's so little that we
1: often need to do to be able to meet it. Absolutely. And so I ask this question to every single one of my guests on the podcast. How do you define success? You know, for me, success has
0: always been the ability to be at the place where your greatest ability as an individual, as a professional meets the world's greatest need. And I go back to the comment that I made earlier about, you know, always being that person who gets up and wants to go to work every day. I forget the financial reward, which is often the default definition of success, right? I think if you are happy and you feel purposeful and you feel impactful in your work, then you are successful. I certainly feel that way. And I've had this amazing career that I could not have crafted, even with the best of planning, even if I've gotten the best management consulting firms in the world to craft my career, I couldn't have come up with the one that I've had. But more than any financial reward that I've gotten from it is just being able to wake up every day and be happy at what I'm doing and being able to go into bed every night and feel spent in the very best ways. And I'm a very spiritual person. So all of my actions come from my faith. And, and I always want to feel used in the very best way. And I feel that way most days of my life. So I consider that success.
1: That is beautiful. There's so much to learn from you. And I definitely wanted to share your story with the world because it's not only about the work that you're doing. It's about who you are as a person that a lot of people can learn from. So <laughs> thank, thank you so much, Elizabeth.
0: <laughs> thank you. It's such a, a pleasure. You know, I I think of myself, I'm at the core of my identity. I really am just a little girl from Africa and, you know, my life should be, has uh, should have been impossible. So I've gotten to do these things, come from a little classroom with a dirt floor in, in Cameroon and ending up in an Ivy League school in the U.S. and and running organizations. And if I can do it, I really do feel that everybody can do it. So I am blessed to be able to share my story to inspire others.
1: Thank you so much, Elizabeth. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. And I can't wait to do this again soon. Thank you. It was great of you to have me. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode of Inner Wealth. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and that you'll join us next week as we continue to explore all the ways success is being redefined in our ever-changing world. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram at Forbes Ignite for more thought-provoking content and opportunities to engage with us. I'm your host, Nicole Kacal. Thanks for joining us.